We have entered Advent season here at Cross Point Coast as we remember the incarnation, the coming of our Savior, the birth of the God-man, the beginning of this great rescue mission that we celebrate here in Advent, a season of waiting, of anticipation. This morning I was listening on my uh, drive in to a song, and one of the things that struck me is just how many uh, Christmas songs, songs of Advent, have uh, really like a, like a piano part that's very sparse, very spare. It sounds like something that would be uh, played in a, in a dark night of waiting. And uh, that's really in many ways what Advent is. We are in the dark night and we are anticipating, waiting the cry of the birth of the newborn king. This morning, I want to introduce you to a sermon series, our Advent series, entitled The Forever King. Uh, As you turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1, just right at the beginning, uh, we're going to look at a passage there. But while you're turning there, I'll turn to my favorite uh, Bible. Uh, This is the Big Picture Story Bible. And I have to tell you that uh, this Bible is written by David Helm and uh, illustrated by Gail Schumacher. And um, one of the things that's interesting about the author is the author actually served on the translation committee for the English Standard Version of the Bible. And so it was very familiar with the scriptures and clearly took what he learned in the translation of the scriptures in the English Standard Version and turned it into a sort of translation of the story of the scriptures in this book, this children's retelling of the story of the scriptures. And one of the things that is noted by David Helm at the beginning of this book, actually in the acknowledgments, is his acknowledgement of to a man named Graham's Gold, Graham Goldsworthy. He is a, a biblical theologian, and he offers this as a uh, a framework or understanding of the scriptures, a way of framing the story of redemption that's recorded for us in the scriptures, that the scriptures are essentially God's people in God's place under God's rule. That is the redemption story, the great anticipation toward which Advent looks, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And what uh, David Helm has done is he's taken that story and he's retold it throughout the whole of the scriptures. And I just want to say that when I was introduced to this book and we were reading it to our first son when he was little, I learned an incredible amount about the Bible. I feel like this Bible gave me my Bible back. And I know the same thing is true for Sandy and for many of you. So I would recommend this not just to those of you who have young children. I'd recommend it to anyone. I've actually even done a high school curriculum that uh, I put together out of this book. And I set all the high school kids down and I read to put on my Mr. Rogers sweater and sat down and read to them from this children's Bible because it's a wonderful retelling. I highly recommend it to you. Now, the way that we're going to go about the telling of that story here in the next four weeks of Advent, I want to walk us through a bit of the outline. The outline, we're going to begin at the beginning in Genesis. We're going to look at Adam and Eve. We are going to see that Adam and Eve, having rejected God's rule, have essentially sought to establish by their own definition what is right and good by their own desires. 
And what we see by looking at Adam and Eve is we are essentially the same. We attempt to establish our own rule by our rejection of God's rule. We establish our own kingdom by the rejection of God's kingdom. And what we see when they did that and we follow suit and then they die. We'll continue next week in with Moses and Joshua. Matthew Hardy will lead us through some scripture in the book of Joshua. And what we see is Moses and Joshua, in many ways, though they were faithful at many accounts, there were also ways in which they and the people sought to establish a righteousness from among themselves by their own will and by their own commitment. And really, you and I do the same. Having lost the kingdom, we try to establish our way or work our way back into the garden by establishing a rule of our own faithfulness, our own self-righteousness, declaring that we ought to get our way back into the kingdom. But what we discover about Moses and Joshua and ourselves when we try to live in God's kingdom by our self-righteousness is they also died. Then we'll look at David and Solomon. Surely they're the king. They're the forever king. Finally, the forever king has come with the promise of David. Well, he dies. So so surely Solomon is the one. And what we see is the people of Israel have, have put forth a king and they try to establish a righteous king from among themselves. We really attempt to do the same thing. We attempt to establish God's rule by our own little representative heads. We try to find people who can sort of be righteous for us, who can read the Bible for us and tell us what it's about. People who can, yeah, I'm not perfectly righteous, but I kind of hang out with the right group of people, perhaps. Or perhaps we just get together as that representative group of people in the church. I'm not righteous, but I go to church, right? There's a representative head. And then we will finally come the Sunday after Christmas to Jesus. And what we see in Jesus is that he comes to establish God's own people, to gather them into God's own presence, which is his presence under God's own kingdom rule. And all of this he does in his incarnation and in his performance of the gospel. And he shall reign forever and ever. Yes, it's true. When we were working on this series, we thought about saying, and he died. Of course, you and I know that that means something far different than Adam and Eve or Moses and Joshua or David and Solomon. And he died and he rose and he reigns in victory. Now, this morning as we turn to Genesis, Genesis in our study this morning is definitionally different. It is is necessarily a different study than the next two weeks. You see, our story this morning begins in the right and good kingdom, under God's right and good rule. It is different than week two and three because week one is Adam and Eve rejecting God's rule and tearing down the kingdom. Weeks two and three are mankind trying to restore what they lost by their own means. But today we see how they lost it. So follow along with me in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 28 to begin our time together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray that as we consider your word throughout the morning, that you would give us a disposition of humility before what you have to teach us, that we would believe you, that we would examine, that we would consider, that we would think, that we would engage, but that we would also humble ourselves before your revelation of yourself and who we are. Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves in this story and we would recognize our role and ultimately that we would find ourselves in a position of need of a Redeemer and long for Jesus. I pray that you would work this among this gathering of people this morning. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. This morning, we begin our story in the Garden Kingdom. We begin our story in verse 26. 26 begins, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. We have God creating, all right? When he does so, what he creates, these people, these humans that he makes, are truly and uniquely God's people. God's people in God's place under God's rule. They are uniquely God's people. Creation isn't just God making things. It isn't just God just exercising a creative whim. He's making a specific creation and placing it in a specific place. He's doing this in a specific way. This is why verse 27 is so important. Look at it with me. Poetically stated, yet powerfully so. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In that beautiful, poetic passage of God's revelation of what he is doing in the creation of humanity, God is defining us. The creator is explaining by this definition what he is doing when he's making human. When he makes us, he does so in a particular way. He does so by making us image bearers, male and female. He created them. And it is with a man and a woman that God would fill the garden with his image. This is what he does in verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, here's this beautiful first command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. You see, God's people are rulers. And these rulers are to multiply the glory of God's image that has been placed in them as male and female made to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam and Eve are the king and queen in creation to populate the garden with princes and princesses, a people whose role is to exercise, according to God's command, to have dominion. 
They are God's people, according to God's definitions, according to God's design. And they are in God's place. Look at verse 31 with me. And God saw, as he looked around at this place with his people, on this, the sixth day, God saw that he had made everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. I love that statement. I love the way that it said the simplicity. We all understand what that means. That's simple language. What God is doing here is for his own pleasure. And he takes pleasure in it. God's happy. He made, and he knows exactly what he made and why he made it. And it pleases him. He looks at it and he says, my creation, according to my design, is very good. He was pleased. In Genesis 3, we see God. He's in the practice of walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Friends, when I think of God, I have this sort of tendency to think of God as transcendent and distant and observing. Okay? That is not the way that he is presented in the creation account. It's not his own self-revelation. We see a God who participates in creation in the cool of the day. I mean, it didn't have to say that. It could have just said he was out walking and he noticed that Adam couldn't be found. It doesn't say that. In the cool of the day, we have a God who takes pleasure in and amongst his creation. He is outside of it. He is creator. He is the sovereign. He is God. And yet, he walks in the garden. The garden is the place where God was to literally walk among his creation. This is the place where men and women were to literally walk with God in whose image they were made. And so we have God's people, and they're in God's place, the place that in which he is pleased. And then we see that they are under God's rule. In these first chapters, we see God's word working exactly as he wills. This is important. I could have said the sentence, we see God working exactly how he wills. And that's true, right? But more specifically and accurately to the text, we see God's word working according to how he wills. That means that God is not just a laborer who gets stuff done. God is a sovereign who declares what will be. Do you see? This is God's rule being exercised in Genesis 1. We see God acting like a sovereign. He's the one who defines and declares what is good. And what he does not declare to be good isn't good. And what he declares to be good is good. What does he call good? He calls good the work of his word. That's important for us to this day. What is good? Well, whatever is the work of God's word, whatever is the work of the sovereign, the king, the definer of creation, that's what good is. He defines, he names, he orders, he commands, he blesses, he curses. All those things are sovereign works. God is the ruler of the garden kingdom. Look at chapter 2, verse 15 with me. 
Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, it's God's garden. Adam and Eve, they are to exercise dominion in it, but God is the sovereign over it. So he can tell his under-sovereigns, these people exercising dominion according to his command to work and to keep it. Mankind is placed there to work and keep the garden according to his will. So it is still God's work, God's way that is taking place under his good rule. In verse 16, it continues, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we can notice right away that this is a generous command. You may surely eat, and yet God is the ruler. He's the one who reserves the right to command his creation and to define for them what is good to eat and what is not good to eat. And the warning, the generous warning, is if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. I want you to see this. God is working by his word. He exercises his sovereignty by the word of his mouth. Even his command, he's exercising sovereignty, not just the right to tell you what to do, but when he tells us what to do and we listen, we discover not only what we can and can't do, but what is good and what is evil. What is pleasing, what is not pleasing. You see, we don't discover that what is good and evil by our eyes. We don't discover what is good and evil by our minds. We discover what is good and evil by our ears. It's the Lord who speaks, and we discover what is true. Which brings us to this question. What went wrong? God walking in the garden in the cool of the day is not my experience of this creation, right? It's not yours either. What went wrong? We spent all of 13 weeks studying the Sermon on the Mount. We focused on and titled the series, The Way of the King. Jesus tells us that the way of the king is this, that apart from his grace, we are utterly destitute. Apart from submission and faith, we are lost. A poverty of spirit, he opens the Sermon on the Mount with. But as he describes the way of his kingdom, we find that the way of his kingdom is beautiful and compelling. And really, I think, nearly most importantly, is we find that the way of his kingdom is not our way. It seems upside down to us. But before we get to how Jesus restores the kingdom, we must first remember how we lost the kingdom. What breaks here in this passage is what breaks is, is God's rule over us. We reject God's rule. Look at chapter 3 with me. It's the story of the losing access to the kingdom. Verse 1, serpent, more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree? In the garden, did God actually say? Now, let's stop and remember rightly. What was the command? Was God's word, was God's stingy, prohibitive command to the man, you shall not eat anything. You're going to have to grow it yourself. Was that God's word? Did God really say that? No. 
God's command was generous. You may eat of any tree in the garden save this one. His word, his command is a generous command. The first thing that we are to do is we are to remember God's word rightly. So what went wrong here? Well, the first thing is that God's people are tempted by the enemy of God to fail to remember God's word. Eve seems to correct the serpent, but the seed of doubt is already planted. This is the first means by which we lose God's good and right rule over us. We begin to forget, we begin to question what God's word is. And let us remember that God's word is the means by which the whole of the garden was created. And whatever word has the power to create the whole of the garden perhaps has authority to tell us what is good and what is evil. So by rejecting God's rule, by rejecting God's word, we're essentially rejecting his power or rejecting his authority. Now, the serpent continues in verse 4, chapter 3. The serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't surely die. Eat away. Well, what went wrong? Well, not only is God's word doubted, it's flatly rejected, right? Not only is, has God withhold, withheld his generosity, God is also withholding the truth from you, Eve. God isn't just stingy, he's a liar. If the world was governed in truth and not falsehood, Eve, we would throw off the lies of God and establish a rule based on our own wisdom. Listen to that. This is so important for what this passage has to teach us. Essentially, the rule that Eve and Adam with her establish is not God's rule. That's what they're casting off as a lie. A stingy lie. What they're establishing is a rule by means of their own wisdom. And we can see for ourselves that the tree is good, she says. We can see that it's good for food. We can see with our own eyes that it's a delight to the eyes. We can see in this passage how the serpent tempts the woman to place her own wisdom above the wisdom of God. Yeah, I heard what God said so much so that I can repeat it with my lips, but my eyes see something different. And I see that the tree is good for food, and it's a delight to the eyes. Mm. Maybe, given my recent thoughts, I should throw off the stingy rule of God and exercise my own wisdom today. It's to say I know what God has said, but I can't reconcile what God has said with what I've seen with my own eyes. Friends, that's not foreign to my experience. That's not foreign to your experience. You know what that's like to see and to feel and to think something and be like, but God said, but I see. And it seems like, but God said, you know what that's like. You know that tension. And you know what it's like to say, and so 
I will reject God's word. I will trust my mind. I will trust my will. And I will trust my desires. I will establish my own kingdom and throw off the kingdom of the stingy liar. True wisdom. True wisdom, though, is not wisdom of our own deduction. It's not a wisdom of our own discernment. True wisdom, according to the whole of scriptures, any time wisdom is spoken of, wisdom is a revealed wisdom. It comes from above and outside of us. It's not that we invent truth. It's that truth is revealed to us from the one who is above us. And it is our job then to receive it with faith and then to test it and to test it over time and see if the truth that has been revealed is real. Is it real? Does it play out? Is the gospel true that has been revealed? Does it play out in reality? True wisdom and knowledge does not come through the eye. Wisdom and knowledge comes by hearing with faith. Sure, if there was no God, let's just pretend for a moment, they find themselves in some garden, they're not sure how it got there, but they know it's not God, all they have is their eyes. Get busy, eat what looks good, right? That'd be good wisdom. That would be what we call worldly wisdom. The things we perceive, then processed with the mind, this would be our only access to truth. Go for it, right? naturalistic humanism. But there is a God, and the God has spoken, and he's given us a word by which we can know something far greater than worldly wisdom and deduction of our sense perceptions. We have access to revelation. Authority that is above us and outside of us that has come to us that we receive with faith, and the only way to receive revelation is faith in the character of the revealer, faith in his generosity, observation of his authority. From that place, we become a people who can hear with the ears and come to a greater understanding than what we have seen with our eyes and deduced with our minds. What happens? In verse 7, when they eat of the tree, when they see with their eyes, the do with their minds and go for it, they saw that they were naked, they were undone, and they were exposed. They were no longer natural or fitting in this place. They became rebels. And you know what rebels are? They're not welcome in a righteous kingdom. Not if the righteous kingdom would be righteous. Righteous kingdoms ruled by righteous kings put down rebellions before they destroy the whole place. And so they hid themselves from fellowship with God. What went wrong? The creation order was unraveling. The creation order is God speaks and the creation responds in faith and faithfulness. It's unraveling. They were to be a man and a woman and they were to be unashamed. They were to walk with God as his people in his place, but they'd rejected his rule. They were no longer his people. They were rebels loose in a garden kingdom. They had to be expelled 
And outside the garden, they would be exposed to the elements and they would ultimately die. You see, having rejected God's rule, this is our story. We seek to establish our own definition of right and good by our own desires, by our own perceptions, by our own worldly thinking. And, and to be clear, I'm not, when I say worldly thinking, I'm not talking about evil, nasty stuff over here. It's, it's simple. It's the whatever we have access to outside of the revelation of God, not submitted to his word. That's what worldly thinking is. It's to see, perceive, think, and conclude, and that's it, with no consideration from a word that is from outside. This is the essence of what sin is. It's our shaking of our fist in the air and screaming in defiance to God, on my own, I can live. I don't need your rule. I figured something out on my own, and I'm going to take it. And from this point on, having rejected God's beautiful creation order, his people, his place, his rule, so much of the rest of the story of mankind is an effort to climb our way back into the garden, to show God we can do better this time, or in continuing rebellion, to establish the kingdom of God on our own without him, by our own sense, perception, deduction, and effort. We'll establish God's kingdom this time. We've been doing it since the earlier chapters of Genesis and ever since. We'll see in the coming weeks of Advent that every one of our efforts to save ourselves does not end in life, doesn't end in human flourishing. It ends in death, just as the Lord had said. Just like Adam and Eve, the hope is not in our wisdom. It's not in our efforts, our wits, or our desires. The hope is to be found in a return to faith in God's word. He's spoken, and we have to listen and to submit ourselves to what he said. I love the book by Francis Schaeffer. Very simply says, and we can hear the implications in it, he is there and he is not silent. Well, if he's there and he's not silent, what ought we to do? Then we have this beautiful first gospel. Look at verse 15 with me. And I wonder, have you read this and seen the gospel there? Chapter 3, verse 15. God is cursing the serpent. He's speaking to him. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's interesting, that verse. There are actually two parts to it. And it's not that the first part is just like some information, the second part of its gospel. The gospel actually has at least two parts. The first part of this verse is really the first part of the gospel. It's the truth. I love this about the gospel. The gospel looks at the world the way it really is. The truth of God's good news isn't afraid to tell the truth isn't afraid to to look at the truth and see what's there. That instead of dwelling in peace in the garden with all the garden's creatures, there will be enmity. There would be strife. There would be conflict. There would be suffering. Specifically in our days outside the garden, we will live them out with a very real enemy. And the gospel isn't afraid to say so. The gospel is truth-telling. 
It's God's own perspective about what is real. It isn't just that life's hard and we face hard times, right? That's a worldly perception. We can see it. Few people argue that life isn't hard. We can see that and we can perceive it and we can conclude it. But God's word reveals to us, oh, it's more than hard. We have an enemy who would destroy us. There, this is what the Lord has revealed. It's the truth of the matter. But it's only a part of the gospel. You see, the second half of the gospel in verse 15 is hope. Essential to Advent, hope in coming. Speaking to the serpent, to Satan, he says, He will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. We who have the fullness of the gospel recorded for us in the scriptures, we can understand the hope that God refers to here. By his word, he's declaring what will be. It's true in this world with Satan as our enemy, a descendant of Eve will be bruised by Satan. It's true. What we discover as we see the whole of the narrative play out is this is the Messiah. It's Jesus. The descendant of Eve will be crucified. Friends, bruised is a small word for what would happen to Jesus. Crucified. When the sun goes black and the sun hangs its head in shame, it appears that the enemies won. The heel of the offspring of the woman has been bruised. But a descendant of the woman, we're told, in verse 15, a descendant of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, and elsewhere translated, will crush the head of the serpent. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, how it says it. Through death, that is speaking of his crucifixion, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death. Referring to the first half of verse 15, right? The truth, there is an enemy and he has the power of death. But through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think that refers to more than 70 years for any one individual. I think it refers to humanity's story. Lifelong slavery. Jesus' supposed defeat on the cross is the very means by which he triumphs over sin and death. At the heart of the gospel is the reality that humans do not rescue themselves. You hear that? Humans don't climb back into the garden. The God-man comes. That's called the incarnation. And he does a work that we couldn't do. People have been dying the whole of human history. He dies and he conquers death. The story of redemption, the truth of the gospel is that God has a rescue plan. And yet it is a man. It's a future king and redeemer who would triumph for us and rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. It's Jesus. It's the God-man. Verse 15 of chapter 3 is the promise of the incarnation that we celebrate in this season of Advent, that God-man will rescue humanity and restore us to God's place as God's people under God's rule. Now, we've only begun to hear the story of redemption. We're only in the first three chapters, and the story continues. 
Today, we've heard how Adam and Eve lost their position as God's unique people in his beautiful garden kingdom. They lost that position specifically because they'd rejected God's rule. Another way to say it, they'd rejected God's word and trusted their own wisdom. In the beginning, it looked like Adam and Eve would rule forever with God in the beauty of the garden kingdom. They're going around, they're naming the animals, they're, they're fruitful and they're multiplying. Here's this beautiful people in the beautiful place with everything that they need, right? It looks like a beautiful story. And now the rule is called into question. The rule of God is called into question by Adam and Eve and we're left waiting. Evidently, they aren't the forever rulers. Is there a forever king? Now, this is not some sort of far-off fairy tale. This is not someone else's story. This is our story. To this day, we as humanity are prone to reject God's word, God's right to define us, God's right to reveal truth to us, to tell us who we are and how we are to walk. And we show that we're truly children of rebels every time we reject God's rightful Rule. We display it's not something that Adam and Eve did to us and we would have done differently. My life proves otherwise. We're prone to follow our eyes and our hearts rather than the revealed word of God. And so this morning, at its essence, is a call to faith. Not to prove ourselves to God. Not to tell God, I'll get it right this time. I have a track record. And it says, no, you won't. None of you humans have gotten it right except the Christ. Not to prove ourselves to get it right this time. It's a call to repent and confess that we've rebelled. That we've chosen our own way according to our own wisdom and our own desires. We've rejected God's word and God's rule and it hasn't worked out for us. All that we have is our impending death to look forward to. It's a call to submit ourselves to God's way of redemption, that Jesus is the descendant of Eve, who has crushed the head of the enemy, all according to the word of God. That Jesus, in this Advent season, is our, ad, is our forever king. He's the one who's restored the people of faith that is God's people to God's place under God's rule. I have a question as we close. Let's just pretend, let's go to an alternative reality. God's walking along in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve had sinned. They run off, they'd hidden themselves, and they're cowering off in a corner. And God calls out to them. What if in this alternative story, this alternative universe, what if Adam and Eve had confessed? They crawled out of the corner when God called to them. What if, what if they'd repented? I'm lost. That's where I am. I'm lost. Everything seems so confused. The garden isn't like what it used to be. And this woman who is with me, she's not how she was just yesterday. And I think I'm broken. What if that had been his confession that day? I'm guilty. I don't understand what's happening to me. I thought the tree would give me knowledge, but I find myself lost in my own mind. God's answer would have been the same. This is so important. To understand the gospel, we have to understand God's answer would have been the same. Death. That's what I said. My word is true. If you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. 
death is utterly necessary. It is the right response of a good king to rebellion in his kingdom. You don't say, don't worry about it. I'm sure you'll get it right next time. The Lord's answer would have continued, though, just as it did, even though he didn't confess. Don't be afraid, Adam. And then he would detail the plan of redemption that he begins in verse 15. Don't be afraid, Adam. I have a plan. You didn't surprise me when you hid in your rebellion. I have a plan. It's called redemption. He would tell of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die in the place of Adam and Eve and all of their children who would come. All of humanity and creation would be redeemed, reconciled, and rescued, and restored. That's what God would say. You know how we know he would say it? Because that's what he said. You who have shaken your fist at God and said, on my own I can live. We whose lives are broken, are wrecked with sin, and we've tried to figure things out on our own, tried to reconcile what we see with what we think, and we just keep ending up confused over and over again. When the Lord questions, where are you? The only truly appropriate response this morning is I'm lost. I'm confused. It's dark over here. I need help. And then remember what he's told us of his redemption. It's the essence of what it means to confess and to believe the word of God and let him work to restore us to his grace, his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Advent, that these aren't questions that we're not sure how they play out. We, we don't have to say, I'm lost and I'm confused and, and I think you might be able to help, but I'm not sure how, that we can say, I'm lost, I'm confused, but... I heard you also say something about how there's a way out of this. And it's in utter dependence upon you in faith by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. This this is our confession this morning. I pray that every single one here this morning would examine their hearts and would they hear you say, where are you? We would respond, oh God, I'm lost without you. By grace you have come. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would work that work in every single heart, particularly those who up to this point have run away and rejected and continued to hide. I pray that you would bring faith and redemption to that soul. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in your long-suffering and kind and sovereign and righteous name. Amen.